You know, we've been studying the life of Peter and looking at his writings, especially 1 Peter. And if you think about the person of Peter, obviously one of the really cool things about Peter is that he got to spend a lot of time with Jesus. And I think one of the things that's got to be especially memorable is just the kind of cast of characters that Peter must have come in contact with. I mean, Jesus is interacting with all sorts of different people from every walk of life and every background and every situation. And if I'm Peter, a number of those characters are going to kind of lodge in your mind. And you're going to remember them because of their uh, outlandish personalities or the things that they did. Especially as you get to watch Jesus interact with them. Well, it's my opinion that one of the memorable set of characters or one of the groups that, that Peter had a chance to meet when he was with Jesus is a pair of sisters, Martha and Mary, who live in a little town uh, called Bethany. And Peter went to visit them with Jesus on multiple occasions. But on one occasion in which Peter shows up with Jesus and the other 11 disciples, they show up and they're going to stay at Martha and Mary's house. Well, as I envision it reading this story, Martha is clearly the oldest child in the family. And she's the type A personality. So here comes Jesus and his 12 disciples. And of course, they got to be fed. So Martha gets to work right away and she begins to prepare food. And fortunately, she's super organized. She's done the grocery shopping for the week. She's all set. She begins to get the bread and get everything together. Still a lot of work. Okay. And she's hard at work, but... Meanwhile, her sister Mary, who I'm sure is the youngest child in the family, uh, is seated at Jesus' feet, just listening to him teach. And Martha, of course, is feeling uh, like all the burden is on her shoulder. And so she comes to Jesus and says, hey, my sister, she says, can you send her in here? Like, Basically, I've tried a million times to get her to do her share. She's not going to do it. Maybe if you talk to her, something good will happen. And Jesus says to Martha, Martha, you're anxious about many things. And you're concerned about many things. But what Mary's doing, she's chosen the better route. And see, from outward appearance, what Martha is doing looks like the right thing. I mean, Jesus is for hospitality. People need to be fed. It's a good thing to serve in the kitchen. It's a good thing to be able to serve people food. Martha, from an outward appearance, is doing good things. And I'm not saying she's not. But what Jesus is doing is he's looking in her heart. And he's seeing that all of those good actions are being driven by a heart of fear and anxiety. Mary, on the other hand, who from outward appearance looks as if she is lazy or negligent, Jesus says, but you got to look beneath the surface. What's going on in Mary's heart is that she has a heart that's at rest, a heart that's at peace, that's simply quietly sitting in Jesus' presence. Now, I'm sure this must have made an impact on Peter as he's there with Jesus watching this interaction take place. And I wonder, though I can't be sure in any way, if these two women, Mary and Martha, are in Peter's mind when he writes the passage that we're going to look at this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3. And as Peter is thinking about the instructions God has given him to women, I wonder if these two women 
are somehow in the back of Peter's mind, if they weren't when he wrote it. I still think Mary and Martha provide a helpful way for us to understand Peter's instructions for women. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3, page 982. You heard the passage read earlier. Vita read it for us. As you're turning there, let me remind you of the context in which this passage appears in the book of 1 Peter. It's been a little while since we have been in the flow of our sermon series in 1 Peter, and we may have lost where this is in the context of the whole book. Remember, what Peter's doing in 1 Peter is he is setting out God's plan to rescue the world. And God's plan to rescue the world has three steps. The first is that God chooses. God chooses us for salvation. The second step is, is that we then obey. God gives us instructions for how he wants to live as his chosen people in this world. And then step three, God chooses, we obey. Step three, God uses our obedience to bring others to faith. And we've been investigating how God wants to use our obedience uh, to the government and, to the, and in, in the area of politics to bring people to faith. How God wants to use our obedience in the church, at home, at school, at work. And this morning we have an opportunity to look at God's instructions in regards to male-female relationships and more broadly speaking to women about how women can be the women God wants you to be in order to rescue the world. Now it's important to understand the context in which this uh, is written because many of us have heard 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 6, the passage we're going to look at, preached as a passage about marriage, that it's in the context of marriage, how to have a good marriage. And that's true. God does want you to have a blessed marriage. And if you do the things that God is saying in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, wives, you will indeed experience God's blessing in your marriage. But that context is too narrow. What Peter's doing here, the scope of what Peter is saying is far grander and far bigger than simply having to do with marriage. What he's essentially saying to you women this morning is that you matter to God. Not just that God cares about you. He does, of course. But you matter to God in that God is planning on using you to help rescue the world. That you are important to God because you have a vital role to play in salvation history. You have a vital role to play in what God is wanting to accomplish in this world. You see, as men, we sometimes like to think it all rides on our shoulders. That if we would just be the men that God wants us to be, that God would be able to accomplish, that everything would go well. That's simply not the case. What God is saying to you women this morning... Is, is that you are an essential part of what he wants to accomplish in this world. You're not ancillary to what he wants to do. You are central to it. And so God is taking a moment this morning and addressing specifically women to tell you how it is that you can be a part of what he's doing to rescue the world. Now as we begin looking at this passage... 
we need to be clear about just who God is speaking to this morning. Look in verse number one. It says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. So first off, God is talking to women who are married to non-Christians. So if you're this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, but your husband is not, this passage is very clearly addressing you. But second, notice where it says, do not believe. We've translated that do not believe, which I think is the right translation. But the word that's used there is a word that more normally has the shade of meaning for disobey as opposed to disbelief. And Peter, when he uses this word other places in this epistle, is focused more on people's behavior than he is on their belief system. So what this seems to mean is, is that if you are a woman who is married to a man who claims to be a Christian, but is not behaving like a Christian, this passage is written for you as well. That if your husband claims to be a Christian, but is not living for Jesus, this passage is addressing that situation also. But third, look in verse six. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Abraham is clearly a follower of God and a hero of the faith. So for Peter to use Sarah and Abraham as an example, this passage must also be applicable to women who are married to good Christian men. That what God has to say in his instructions here, if you're here and you're married to a man who loves Jesus and is trying his best to follow Jesus, this passage is written for you as well. And then finally, verse 5, for this is the way that the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. It's important that the NIV has translated the word women there in verse 5 and not wives. And that's because the recognition is what God is saying here is applicable to women who are not in a marriage relationship. That women in the past, meaning women from the Old Testament, who were not in a marriage relationship but put their hope in God, God used those women to bring about great things. So if you're here this morning and you're a female and you're not married, this passage is also speaking to you. Now, if you're a guy, there are some things hopefully we can learn by listening, but really, next week is our week. This week, God's talking to women. And if you want to get how important what he has to say to women is, women got six verses, men get one verse. <laughs> now I can say that jokingly, but listen, the point is, God wants to rescue the world and women's role in that is extremely important. This is not some little side thing God is doing. Women, what God is saying to you is, look, you are absolutely essential to my plans to rescue the world. Not just your husband, but yes. Not just your children, yes. But the whole world. This is incredibly affirming and important. And God is saying, look, ladies, if you will be the women that I'm asking you to be, 
the gates of hell will not stand against what I'm about to do. Now, what is it that God is saying to women about being the kind of godly women that he wants you to be? Well, if I was going to summarize everything that Peter has said, if I was going to put it all in one phrase or one idea, it comes out of verse number four. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, meaning it's incredibly powerful. God can use the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit to accomplish incredible things. The instruction, ladies, pursue a gentle and quiet spirit. That essentially a woman with a beautiful soul, God can use to change the world. Now what does that mean? Well, let's investigate that a little further. Notice how it's described as the unfading beauty. See that word unfading? That's the same word that Peter used in chapter 1 to speak of our inheritance that's being kept in heaven for us. It's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Same word. Now, how many of you here have seen the show Downton Abbey? Come on, you can own up to it. It's a good show. I like it. Lisa loves it. <laughs> she's passionate about it. So even though she's not tonight, she's going to find whatever she's doing tonight, she's going to find a way to watch Downton Abbey. She's been waiting nine months for the fourth season to start. And now they're in the middle of it. She, should, she couldn't be happier about it. Now, one of the great things about the show, actually one of the central characters in the show, is not a person at all, but the house. The house is a central part of the show. It's this beautiful, uh, amazing British house. Uh, it's called Downton Abbey in the show. In real life, it's Highclere Castle. And it's just this amazing... And it's really the center of the whole show. And everything is oriented around this house. And in fact, all of the characters in the show behave the way they behave because of the house. It's the servants act the way they act because of the house. The daughters whom the house will be their inheritance potentially act the way they do because of the house. Everything centers around this house and the life that goes with the house that is Downton Abbey. Well, Peter's saying the same thing, except he's saying to you women... You've got an inheritance waiting for you in heaven that far outstrips Downton Abbey. You've got a mansion waiting for you in heaven that is far beyond High Clear Castle. And the point is, Peter is saying, your behavior needs to match your inheritance. That the beauty of your soul has to go with the beauty of the home that you're going to receive. That just like Mary Crawley, who in the show is supposed to be the one who's going to receive the house, her behavior and her character needs to match that of the home that she's receiving. And Peter's saying to you this morning, listen, you have an inheritance in heaven that's coming that can never perish, spoil, or fade, whose eternal beauty far outstrips anything you'll ever see on this earth. And God is saying, I want you to have the kind of character and the kind of soul that matches the beauty of the house you're going to receive. He further describes that in terms of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle does not mean weak. Gentle means strength under control. 
And the reason we know this is the person in the Bible most often described with the word gentle is Jesus. Jesus, the one who turns over the tables in the temple. Jesus, the one who scolds the Pharisees or his disciples. He is described as being gentle, which means he has incredible power, but he keeps it under control. When Jesus goes to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to Peter, couldn't I call down legions of angels to protect me? I've got the strength and the power. But he chooses not to use that. Instead, he goes gently to the cross. The word quiet is not talking about speaking. The word quiet is talking about your spirit. It means a spirit that is at rest. A spirit that is at peace. A quiet and gentle spirit is not a spirit that never talks. Jesus talked all the time. He had lots and lots to say. A quiet and gentle spirit, quiet means that your spirit is at rest. That it says in Isaiah that as Jesus was led uh, to the cross, he was like a lamb quietly going to slaughter. Meaning that his heart was at peace. He was trusting that God was going to take care of him. That a beautiful soul is a heart that is quiet and gentle. In many ways, Mary, who we talked about from the beginning of the sermon, is a picture of this. That as Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching, her heart is at rest. Now the opposite of a quiet and gentle spirit is in verse 6. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. The opposite of a quiet and gentle spirit is an anxious and fearful spirit. This is in many ways what Martha in that story represents. It's not that what Martha was doing was bad. It's that the spirit that was driving her actions was a spirit of anxiety and of fear. Perhaps she was afraid that everybody would think she was a bad hostess if they didn't have enough food put out. Perhaps she was afraid that people would look down on her if they didn't think that she was the best cook in town. Perhaps whatever it was, she was anxious and afraid, jealous of her sister. She was doing good things, but it was driven by the wrong heart. It was driven by a heart of fear. And Peter says, that's the opposite. A Martha heart is a heart that's given way to fear. A Mary heart is one that's quiet and at rest, at peace. Now, what does it look like to have a Mary heart? What does it look like to have a beautiful soul that God can use to change the world? Well, Peter gives us three very real ways in which a merry heart shows itself in our lives. The first is the area of submission. The first is the area of submission. Now listen, it's incredibly difficult for one person to submit to another person. It's just an incredibly hard thing to do. And when God tells wives to submit to husbands who might not be Christians in verse number one, or to submit to those who don't always make the best decisions, like in verse number six, 
This raises all sorts of questions and concerns and complexities. How in the world could this work itself out? I don't think I have the ability to try to think through it with you this morning, neither the time nor the capability. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask a more fundamental question. Now, all of us as Christians are required to submit, but this is specifically addressed to wives. And so wives, here's the question that I want you to ask yourself. When you hear God say to you, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, I want you to ask, what goes on in your heart when you hear those words? Is your first response, well, submission, wait, that, that's not a good concept. <laughs> Is your first response, but wait a minute, couldn't that be abused? Because yes, it can be abused. Is your first response a a question, but what if my husband asks me to do something that I know is wrong for me or for my kids as far as won't work out well, which does sometimes happen? If that's your first response, if your heart begins to pound when you hear the phrase, wives submit to your husbands, that's an example of a Martha heart. It's being fearful and anxious. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't concerns with the idea of submission. I'm not saying that it's not difficult to have to work this whole thing out. I'm not saying that it's not incredibly complex. I'm not saying that there are times in which you're not even supposed to submit because it would ask you to do something that's contrary to what God would want you to do. But what I am saying is when you hear God say to you, wives, submit to your husbands, does your heart become afraid? Do you begin to think about all the ways that this is not going to work? Do you begin to think about all the ways that this could potentially be abused or how this could keep you from getting what it is that you want? If that's the case, that's an example of a Martha heart. A Mary heart, on the other hand, says, wow, that sounds really, really hard because it is. But I know that God will be with me. I know that God loves me. I know that my father in heaven would never ask me to do something that he wasn't going to help me with. And you may not know what that's going to mean a week from now or a year from now or two years from now or in what this situation or in that situation. But a Mary heart says, Jesus was asked to submit to all sorts of people and all sorts of experiences that were not in his best interest. And God the Father walked with him through that. I know that he'll be with me. See, the world does not think that submission is a workable concept. And I agree. That's because submission as a workable concept is not dependent on having a good husband. Submission as a workable concept is always dependent on having a good God. Now, women, I'm not asking you here to trust your husband. I'm asking you here to trust God. And I'm not here to tell you that it's all going to work out well, that everything will be great, that nothing will ever go wrong, that you'll never have any problems. But I am saying that God loves you and will walk with you and will guide you and will take care of you. And if you're willing to rest in that, that's a merry heart when it comes to the concept of submission. The second area that Peter addresses, specifically for women here this morning, although it is applicable for men too, has to do with the area of outward appearance physical beauty. Verse 3 says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. 
So the same question, women. When you think about the issue of physical beauty, what happens in your heart? Now listen, this world is an incredibly difficult place to live when it comes to the issue of physical beauty. Everything is being judged and evaluated by physical beauty. I mean, the, it's almost impossible to hear the world or your friend or whoever go on about how some other woman is beautiful and not feel insecure about that. It's almost impossible to resist the temptation to give more time and energy and effort to outward appearance because that's what everyone around you is doing. That's where everything in this world is pushing. And so I'm not here to say that dealing with the issue of physical beauty is easy. It is not in the least. But I am saying when you think about your physical appearance, what happens in your heart? Do you get anxious and fearful? When you wake up in the morning and you think, today is a bad hair day. The rest of the day is just going to be downhill from here. When you go to work and you're given an assignment with a coworker who everybody thinks is absolutely gorgeous, is what runs through your mind and your heart. Well, no one's going to pay any attention to me because they're always going to be staring at her or giving her promotions, or paying attention to what she's doing? Do you think to yourself, if I don't lose weight, I'm never going to be able to find a spouse? Does your heart say, if I have to wear this outfit to church again next week, everyone's going to know that we're in financial trouble and that we're not able to afford new and fancy clothes? Listen, I'm not saying that they're not real fears. But if that's what your heart says... That's a Martha heart at work in relation to physical beauty. A merry heart. A merry heart says, God doesn't look on outward appearance. He cares what's going on on the inside. A merry heart says, God's the one who's in charge of whether I get promoted at work, not whether I'm more attractive than the rest of my coworkers or people pay attention to me or not. A beautiful soul, a quiet and gentle spirit says, God is in control of who I marry and when I get married. And it does not a factor on my physical appearance. God is the one who does. And if my heart is right with God, he will take care of those things. A merry heart says, Jesus consciously chose a body that was not physically attractive. So that God could work through him mightily. And I too am going to choose not to put in the same kind of time and energy and effort that the world is saying to my physical appearance. So that God might use me too. God says that's a beautiful soul in relation to the issue of physical beauty. The last area that Peter shows us what a woman with a beautiful soul looks like is in the area of being given a difficult assignment by God. A difficult assignment by God. Verse 6. <clears throat> like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Now Sarah had a difficult life. She was asked by God through Abraham to leave her homeland. The place that she was comfortable, the people that she knew, her family, the culture that she was familiar with, and go to a place, not that God would show her, but that God would show her husband. 
I mean, hey, after all, at least Abraham got a vision from God. Sarah just simply had to go with him. Sarah also had to go with Abraham down to Egypt and other places and put up with her husband who wanted to pass her off as his sister rather than his wife. And perhaps most difficult of all, Sarah was asked to believe that at her, in her old age, God would give her miraculously a baby. That's a tough assignment. Now, the thing I think that's great about what Peter's done here is you see where it says, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord? That seems to be a reference to a specific story from the life of Sarah and Abraham, a story that comes in Genesis 18. Now, the amazing thing about that story in Genesis 18 This is where Sarah is finding out that she's going to be given this very difficult assignment about having a baby in her old age. And do you know what her response is? She laughs at God and then turns around and lies to him. Because he said, you laughed. She said, no, I didn't. She laughs at God and lies to God. Now that's the Martha Hart at work. It's fear and anxiety. She hears this assignment that God is giving to her and her first response is, that will never happen. And she responds in laughter and in lying. That's an anxious and fearful heart. I think it's so interesting that Peter picks that story to reference here. Do you know why he does it? It's because he's showing that that Martha Hart moment does not define who Sarah is. That in the end, the big picture... Sarah does stick with Abraham. Even when she can't see it, God ends up giving her this child. This child who is the ancestor of the Messiah. That Sarah ends up being this great heroine of the faith. She ends up with this amazing Mary heart, even though she shows this Martha heart in the middle of it. And ladies, why I think this is so encouraging, I hope it's so encouraging for you, it is for me is that when you're given an assignment by God, perhaps you've been asked to walk the road of cancer. Perhaps you find yourself married to a non-Christian husband. Perhaps you've been asked by God to confront a friend on something you do not want to talk to them about. Perhaps you've been asked by God to walk the road of being a widow. And maybe at the beginning of that assignment or somewhere in the middle of that assignment, a Martha heart welled up within you and fear and anxiety began to overcome you. And you began to laugh at God wanting you to do this or to lie to God or to not follow God and let fear and anxiety drive what you're doing. The reason why I know it might be possible is it possible for everybody. It happened to Sarah. But the great thing is, is that God wins out in the end. You see, the ultimate expression of a Martha heart, the ultimate expression of a Martha heart, is I've messed up too badly. God's done with me. That's a heart that is ultimately driven by fear and anxiety. Sarah made mistakes. Sarah laughed at God and Sarah lied to God. And a Martha heart would say, God should be done with Sarah and move on to somebody else. But you know what the ultimate example of a merry heart is? It's a heart that says, but God's too gracious for that. God's too kind to allow my mess ups to destroy what he's doing. And the area in which a true, beautiful soul shows itself 
is when you've been given a very difficult assignment by God and you stumble and fall and realize God still loves me. God still accepts me. And that's why Sarah ends up being this example. Not because she never made any mistakes, but at the end of the day, God was gracious to her and her willingness to keep going when she couldn't see it, to keep doing the right thing, to stick with God, even when she struggled to believe that he could do what he said he was going to do. That's the ultimate expression of a merry heart in this world. And that beautiful soul that Sarah demonstrates far outshone her physical appearance and became a means through which God transformed the world. Women, I want you to hear very carefully what God is saying to you. You're not ancillary to his plans to rescue the world. You are front and center. What the world needs is not a physically beautiful group of women. What the world needs is a group of women with beautiful souls. And God is encouraging, pursue the unfading beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. A spirit that puts its trust in God that says, I don't know how this submission thing is going to work itself out. I don't know how I'm going to make it in a world that's obsessed with physical beauty. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this assignment that God has given me. But I believe that God is good and that he is for me and that he will take care of it. That's the kind of soul that God's going to change the world through. I'll give you an example of what this looks like. I've asked a a woman from our congregation named Rochelle, whose story is a great example of this. She's going to come and share her story. As she comes, let me pray uh, and ask that God would take this truth and impress it on our hearts and help us to hear this story. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the women in this congregation of all ages. Lord, I pray that they would feel affirmed and encouraged. Lord, where there is need for conviction, would you bring conviction? But most of all, I pray that they would hear, Lord God, that you love them and are for them. I pray, Lord, that they would be willing to trust you. God's submission is, it's beyond us. Living in a world that is so obsessed with beauty is beyond us. Some of the assignments you give to us are beyond us. God, I pray that you would help us to see that we can trust in you. Lord, thank you for the beautiful women that you have placed in this congregation. Thank you for the amazing things that you've done through them. And God, as we listen to Rochelle's testimony, which is a work of what you've done, I pray that we'd be encouraged to believe and to trust. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Morning. Pastor Jim asked me to come and share my story about my life with my first husband, Peter. Peter was a good man, but he wasn't a believer. And you add to that a marriage of two very strong-willed people, and it wasn't long before our home was filled with a great amount of strife and bickering. We grew far apart. And if I'd have had access to the money in our house, I'd have packed my bags, taken the kids, and we'd have been gone. As it was, all I could do was cry out to the Lord, and graciously he answered. But it was not what I wanted to hear. The Lord asked me to submit to this man. Now, I thought I had been submitting to this man, 
After all, I'd moved 2,500 miles away from home to be with him for his new job. And I was home with the kids, picking up Barbies and Legos, rather than out with a fulfilling career that I could have had during those years. And dinner was on the table at 6 o'clock every night. What more could God want? But I found out that submission was way more than the things that I thought it was. Submission meant putting Peter's needs and his desires before my own. Now, it also meant not arguing for what I wanted and my rights and my way, even though my rights and my way may have been the best way in my mind. I had to set those aside. It was okay for me to look ahead. It was okay for me to make suggestions. It was necessary for me, for me to make some of those suggestions. It was necessary sometimes for me to plead my case, but when the time came, we had to let him, I had to let him, make the decision and then stand by him, whatever the decision was, even though I knew it was going to be a disaster, and even when it was a disaster. And then I learned that being submissive is not just standing there with attitude going, well, you know, I know it's going to be a disaster. Attitude and words had to be put aside. And I was able to say through God's strength, what can I do to help? With that change in attitude and the change in my own heart, God taught me that it was okay to trust Peter and his decision-making. And the more I trusted, the less strife, the less bickering, the less fighting, and our marriage became rock solid. One of the greatest compliments that I have ever received in my life came from my daughter as she was preparing to get married, and she said, you know, Mom, you and Dad never fought. I really appreciate that. And I looked at her and said, whose house did you grow up in? <laughs> but you know, Really and truly, I am thankful she was too young to remember what it was like in those early days. God blessed our house and God blessed our marriage. Now, as for what First Peter 3 says about being quiet and, and leading with your actions, and well, you can probably guess I wasn't so good at that, and Peter did get witness to, I can tell you. But God has an amazing way of answering prayer, and it was rather unexpected in our case. In 2001... The Lord handed Peter something that he couldn't handle on his own. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer. But for the first time, he saw his own family as a tool that God was using to reach for him. He saw my church family reaching out to him as God's hands. And he found men in his own place of employment who'd been praying for him for years to come to know the Lord. And in January 2002, Peter accepted the Lord as his Savior. The change in him was incredible. The man who had no time for God couldn't find enough time for him. He was always a man of few words. But once he was saved, you couldn't shut him up. His time was really short, but God used him mightily, and he shared his testimony with everyone. The only regret he had when it came time for him to go home was that he hadn't met Jesus earlier. I have to agree. That man he became as a believer, he'd have been phenomenal to live with for those 22 years we were married. As it was, I am just so thankful 
that God allowed me to be his wife for the nine months we had together as believers. And the one thing that I can say is that through all the difficulties and adversities and all the blessings that God showed on our family, I can look at you this morning and say, God is good. Thank you, and thank God.